Hello, Sonoma. My guest today is Dr. Nancy Dome. She is an educator and author of Let's Talk About Race and Other Hard Things with experiences in Sonoma and around the world. I can't wait to get started. Hello, Sonoma. I'm here with Dr. Nancy Dome, a longtime educator, author, coach, and CEO and founder of Epic Education, which aims to transform how we talk about differences. Nancy, how are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you so much for asking. How are you? Doing great. Thanks so much for being on the program. Pleasure. So as I mentioned, you're a longtime educator. You have quite an education background yourself. You got your BA in psychology, MA in curriculum and instruction, and doctorate of education in technology and learning. So I feel like you're perfectly equipped to understand our own psyche and to help us learn about it. Can you tell us about what role education plays in your own understanding of yourself? Well, you know, I think education is truly an opportunity. It's a journey, right? It's um, every time I go to school, I realize how much I don't know. I think that I thought I was a genius when I got out of high school. And then every time I added education, I was like, oh, I don't know Jack Diddley, right? And so it really has helped unlock aspects that I just, I wasn't exposed to, you know, necessarily growing up. It, education has allowed me to broaden my my perspectives and my horizons. I had the opportunity to study abroad for multiple years. And again, this understanding that the U.S. and, you know, my my town, my, you know, living in West Hollywood, that I wasn't the center of the universe, right? So this idea that it's far more expansive and this understanding that we are far more connected to each other. And education was that for me. It just, it just gave me opportunities to really grow and and go deeper into who I am and who I want to be and how I want to contribute to the world. Wow. I like that idea that education really is a journey. And on, on yeah. much of your journey, you spent 10 years teaching in various capacities. You were a teacher, you were a mentor, you even worked at a juvenile court. So your, how did your ex- educational experiences kind of parallel to what you just said? How did they shape the way you saw yourself as an educator? That's an interesting question because, you know, I started off my kind of working career as a professional athlete. And education, except, you know, outside of just going to school, I love school. I love learning. But being an educator was actually never really in the cards. That was not my plan. My plan was to be a psychologist and to, um, you know, marriage and family therapist, work with families. And um, it was through, you know, some kind of happenstance, little coinkadinks that happened that really (laughs) showed me that I was meant to be a teacher. And I know for sure that I am in the right profession. So, you know, I think that the larger question is really understanding that when, you know, you can be on a path and when that path kind of deviates a little bit instead of fighting it, you know, what happens if you just kind of lean into it and let it take you where it's going? And I really feel like had I not done that, I might not be where I am today. So being an educator is, I think that even if I wasn't doing it in a, in a official terms, that is who I am and who I was meant to be. That's so funny that you mentioned taking the paths that that present themselves to you, because you said, I never thought I would own a business. I just took advantage of things as they presented themselves. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. when, when you were 40, you started a business with education in the name, Epic Education. Mm-hmm. Now you've grown it, you have 12 employees. So with this background in education, what are a few of the things that life in the private sector has taught you? Well, there was there was definitely something to be said about getting a regular paycheck every month. 
and not having the stress when I worked for the county office and when I worked for the state. But being in the private sector has actually given me a greater opportunity, have greater reach. And that really was the impetus for doing it. I loved being uh, a teacher in uh, court schools. I loved teaching at the university, but I wanted a greater impact. And it's just really hard when you've got a finite number of students every year in your space to have the impact that I wanted to have. And so being in the private sector actually allows me to touch more people. And that is in alignment with my, my personal mission of who I want to be. So that's been probably the greatest gift is that I can, and then I get to see the impact of my efforts. Has it been kind of challenging to transition into that new space? The public sector is very, very different. There's different rules, there's different procedures, mm-hmm. and the private sector prioritizes you know, the self often. How has, I mean, what was that transition like? Yeah, you know, it was, again, because I wasn't planning for it and I just did it, I had no idea. And I think had I had an idea, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the biggest challenge was really being responsible for other people. You know, the minute I started adding employees, I started adding stress, right? This idea that, you know, I need to make, we need to make money and we need to do good work. And also there is this dissonance in education between like, there's a story that educators have told, we've told ourselves for, you know, centuries, like, or maybe not centuries, but for definitely for over a century that it's, it's the hard work, but we're supposed to be poor doing it. Right. It's Mm -hmm. like, no one expects to go into teaching and make money and, and living in California and being a classroom teacher can be a real struggle to do the work that really is hard work and just teaching other people's children. And then you have to have a roommate to be able to pay your bills. And so that's also this dissonance. So going into the, the, the private sector, this all of a sudden being the one responsible for making sure payroll hit, for making sure that, you know, we had insurance, making sure we had all those things. So I think for me, the most difficult part of that transition was the technical piece. The teaching piece was always in me, but really understanding how to run a business, how to manage people how to, you know, how to be a business owner that I'm still learning. <laughs> well, let's talk about your business. As I mentioned, it's called Epic Education. One of the main ideas is transforming how we talk about difference. Some of your clients and partners include the Kip Bay Area Schools, Hannah Boys Center in Sonoma, and even the California Conservation Corps. I think every successful business starts by filling a need in community or in society. What was the main need that you saw when you decided to start this company? The biggest need was really trying to figure out how to be with each other, like how to literally with all the differences and all the perceived differences that we have, how do we thrive together? And, mm-hmm. you know, we I was really interested in kind of bridging this gap of 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 inequity that I saw happening in our particularly in our schools, looking at our black and brown children who were over disciplined, who were over identified for special education and really wanting to um, not blame or shame anybody, but really work with educators to say, hey, this is predictable. And unless you think inherently there's something wrong with these populations, there's something wrong with the way we're doing education for them. Right. And so without the blame and shame, how do we take a critical look at our practices, at our systems and figure out what is the root cause for the inequities that we see? And that is and continues to be my motivation. And then as the protocol developed, which I know we'll talk about more, 
This idea is how do we talk about these things instead of getting defensive? How do we, how do we like use, put an equity lens on, look at our systems and then have critical conversations so that we can impact change for those who are most vulnerable and who depend on us to really, to do better. Absolutely. And, you know, in our society, difference manifests itself in lots of different ways. We have, because of the internet, connections to people that we would never have otherwise had connections with. And so it becomes increasingly important important to understand, recognize, and communicate through those differences. So yeah. sometimes communications around equity involve terms and vocabulary that can be new to people and sometimes mm-hmm. even contentious, even when we don't fully know what they mean. So how do you mm-hmm. approach bringing, bridging these knowledge gaps and getting everyone on a level playing field? Well, I, so the protocol, compassionate dialogue, the words that we chose were words, they're everyday words, right? We understand compassion, we understand dialogue, and then we yeah. put them together, right? And then <laughs> recognize, interrupt, repair. Those are all words we understand. I think the one word that we have to massage a little bit with people is this notion of interrupt, right? Because when people think of interrupt, they think of it as a negative thing, as you know, something that is abrasive or potentially intimidating or conflict uh, bearing. But this idea of interrupting is really this, through the lens of compassion, is really about holding people accountable and also taking, you know, this notion of self-care. So if you say something or do something that is harmful to me, then my interrupt can come from a place of compassion to correct you so that it doesn't happen again, right? And it's a win-win for both of us if we are, if we're on the same page. And if we're not, I get to know who you are and where you, what you, what you are in my life, right? So either way, I come out the other side better for understanding who, what our relationship is like, and also, you know, how I want to, how I want to communicate. And it is, it's a challenge though, because I think that when we, um, you know, when we feel like we've been confronted or offended, it's, it's difficult sometimes to find that compassion. But I, I think that making that extra effort to do it will go a long way in our, in our ability to stay connected with each other, even in difficult times. And there's a lot of difficult times. I mean, People aren't speaking to people in their families right now because they yeah. have different political views. I mean, like, it's hard to imagine that we are where we are today, right? So I was going to talk about this later, but I think it's good to talk about it now, which is about, you mentioned two things, compassionate dialogue, like you said, compassion and dialogue together, having a good conversation, and this this idea of recognize, interrupt, and repair. Mm-hmm. Uh, without... We don't want to give away the whole book because you have a great book that goes into this whole thing in in depth. Can you just briefly identify what those steps are and recognize, interrupt, and repair and and how you came up with it? Yeah. um, So recognize is one, it's first that external, right? And then it becomes internal where I begin to recognize what do I feel? And that's an important step because um, typically when we're triggered, we react. So that means that I, I say something, I jump at something, but I really need to understand what that, what that feeling is for me, because once I understand what that feeling is, I can actually mitigate that feeling. So if I'm angry and I know that without riding my emotional wave, if I'm angry and I react, then it's not usually very helpful. So if I can ride that emotional, emotional wave, when I'm angry, I could take a deep breath and I can then focus on my interrupt, which would be asking a question. So interrupt says, what question can you ask? Can you share an impact or can you share a different perspective? Those three things are all three ways to ask a question. And it does a couple things. One, it lets the person 
kind of explain themselves to make sure that we didn't have a miscommunication in the first place. But the second thing it does is it gives me a minute to catch my breath so that I can yeah. actually stay engaged, right? And so depending on how the interrupt goes, then the third step is repair. So repair can either happen in the moment, but most often it happens later. It happens a day later, a week later, a month later, when we come back around and we let each other know that we're okay, right? It's an opportunity for us to stay connected, to re-engage, to learn together, to, to grow together. And so those are the three steps. Did I get it or did I miss something? I think you got it. I think you got it. And exactly what you're talking about is like, you recognize when something affects you, when you have a reaction to something, you interrupt mm -hmm. it by saying like, okay, I'm going to tell you that this is the reaction that I had. And then you repair it. As you mentioned, it doesn't have to be right away, but it's cool to have this protocol. And so, as I mentioned, you're an author and you wrote recently, but wrote a book called Let's Talk About Race and Other Hard Things. In the book, you talk about how every day it feels like we're becoming more disconnected and mm -hmm. this is my little attempt at being a part of helping us reconnect, of being part of a solution. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned people aren't talking to their family members. What are some of the major disconnects you see in our society today? And how are you hoping your book can help us bridge them? I mean, right now, I think the major one is just politically like divisive, but also this notion that there's only one way to do something. I, I think we've forgotten how to live and let live like just let people live their lives. We are full of judgment. And all of a sudden, my judgment of you and, and how you live your life, I'm actually now feeling like I can impact that by telling you that it's not okay or there's something wrong with that. And I think that is a dangerous place for us to be because the minute that my identity or one of my identities is no longer mainstream, then I'm in danger of you know, literally having to hide myself, which people are having to do. And unfortunately, like for me, one of the things that, that I'm constantly aware of is that there, there seems to be this kind of, I don't know if it's a backlash because that would imply that it stopped. But, you know, being a black woman, a dark skinned black woman, I'm very conscious of skin and skin color and, and where I am and how people see that. There was a time when I was young where I was very conscious of it. And then there was a, a period of time where I really felt like we were moving beyond that a bit, like just it wasn't as impactful. And now we've come full circle where I feel like, you know, depending on where I am at, after dark in the wrong place, that it's now a problem. And so these are the things we have to talk about and we have to be able to share our experiences and our impact so people can see another another perspective. You know, it's not going to change the minds or the hearts of the people who actually want to cause me harm. But what it does do is it lets other people who are potentially allies know that I'm having a certain experience and how can they support me possibly in, in overcoming it. Yeah, totally. It's helping make people more aware of what's going on and mm -hmm. to see different ways that they can address it. So in this book, beyond tips about how to have tough conversations, you talk about everything from your personal life to techniques for connecting differences. You offer questions for people to reflect on themselves and who they are in the world. I'm mm -hmm. curious what the process was like for you to write this book. Well, the book was in my head for years. Uh, as I as the protocol has evolved, you know, I I created it with a colleague, the the you know, 1.0, 15, almost 15, maybe 20 years ago. Wow. And as I've evolved it and really dug into like what does this mean? Because even in the beginning, compassionate dialogue wasn't even a part of the title. It was just R I R. But kind of to your point before, I realized, oh, 
Without compassion, RIR could be, I recognize that you hurt me. I interrupt by calling you a jerk. And then I repair by never speaking to you again. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's the, that's kind of defeating yeah. the purpose, right? And so yeah. that we, so I had to add on compassionate dialogue to really, to put this container around it, right? So it, it really has, because it's been evolving and I've been thinking about it so much and training it so much, it really just felt like it was something that it was time to put it down. You know, a lot of our clients were asking for support. They were saying, well, this is great when you're in the room with us, but when you're not in the room, how do we practice? How do we remember? And so when I did the book, I really wanted it to, you have the pause and practices at the end of each chapter. I really mm -hmm. wanted it to sink in. And what we know is that repetition is necessary for people to, you know, to actually be able to retain information. And then the other piece was um, like, how do I, how do I reflect in real time? You know, because I know that if I'm if I'm writing while I'm reading, I'm retaining information far better than if I'm just reading and processing in my head. But by the time I've gotten to the last chapter, I don't remember what the first chapter is about. So really having that that connection between our brain and kind of fine motor of writing and getting it down on paper so that we can start to make it more muscle memory. Yeah, well, I can tell you I've really enjoyed reading it. And one of the concepts in the book is that struck me that really got me thinking was you call it the tragedy of non-ness mm -hmm. which comes from the idea that sometimes we can define be defined more by what we aren't than what we are mm -hmm. and this manifests itself mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways from race and ethnicity to religion jobs education capacity can you talk to us a little bit about what this means and why you call it a tragedy yeah um it's a tragedy because we we don't we don't really appreciate the impact of language on us, right? On, on people. And language is so insidious. And, and you think about words and phrases that you've used your whole life that you've never thought about, right? And so I, I, I think that, you know, a non-ness was just, you know, it's a made up word and, but it just made sense because I, I thought about all of a sudden looking at language and thinking how many times we non-English speaker, non-white, instead of like, I'm black or a second language learner. How much more powerful is that? Like you're speaking a second or third language as opposed to you don't speak English, right? Yeah. And so this idea that we're really, how do we focus on what people are and really bring that to light instead of focusing on what people are not? We're going to have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Dr. Nancy Dome. Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. We're here with my guest, Dr. Nancy Dome. We were just talking about how to form identities based on what people are rather than what they are not. Sometimes when people hear these conversations about identities and about what people are and what people aren't, they might be confused. In a lot of ways, the there are certain identities that are really defined by what they're not. You know, like we could say white with a capital W is a lot defined by what it isn't. Some people listening might be asking, you know, why do identities matter so much? And you were asked that question recently and you said, well, just because something's not on your list doesn't mean we shouldn't address it because it might be on the list of the people around you. And in your context, it was about your students, who they are, mm -hmm. where they come from, and what cultural ties they bring to the classroom. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's more about the people around you than it necessarily is about right. yourself. So right. uh, in a recent interview, you described three main parts of your identity as you're black because your race impacts you every single day, and it's something you think about every mm -hmm. day. You're a woman, and spirituality. So I'm curious how you can talk about these three parts of your identity interacting with one another and impacting your daily life. So 
black is always number one and it won't it won't change until we change about how we see that right i have to keep it on my list i can't forget about it because one i'm reminded about it daily and two sometimes it's a matter of safety so right. if i'm walking around oblivious to being a black woman especially in, in particularly in white spaces predominantly white spaces i could potentially be at risk so it always stays up there. The, the spirituality is almost the other side of that, right? Is that how do I stay grounded and know who I really am in my core, in my heart? I'm, I understand that race is a social construct. I just have to acknowledge it because it impacts me. But what would it be like to live where just my, where my spirit just got to, I just got to be me, right? Without focusing on my sexuality or my race or any of those things. And, and that's the, the spirituality actually keeps me grounded when I have to be in this kind of very dense reality of, of race. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Spirituality, because it's so much higher up that you don't have to, it allows you to kind of separate yourself. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And then being a woman is the same thing with race, is that, you know, there's times where being a woman is an advantage and there's times where it's a disadvantage. So those are things that I have to, I just feel like I have to constantly be cognizant of as I'm navigating my surroundings. Totally. And one of the things that I often think about in my experience is, you know, my friends who are girls would tell me about, or women would tell me about just like messages that they receive online that I would mm -hmm. never imagine receiving. That's mm -hmm. just so disrespectful and hurtful. And if I hadn't talked about it with them, I would still never know. I would go around walking around thinking everyone's kind and things. And it's about having these hard conversations. And the title of your book is called Let's Talk About Race, comma, and Other Hard Things. Yeah. Uh, and you've mentioned before that our society often discourages conflict of any kind, but why is it so important to discuss the hard things? Well, because nothing great ever happens when, when we don't. I mean, that's that's really the bottom line is that if you if you want to get to the place of innovation and and change and growth, you have to go through discomfort. If we are always comfortable, there's no reason to change anything. And so we if we really want to create, you know, a society where everyone belongs and everyone can be themselves, it's going to be hard, but it's worth it. You know, it's absolutely worth it. And we need we just need the skills to have those conversations to make those changes occur. Being complacent, sitting back, you know, letting things go, um, nothing great happens that way. We didn't go to the moon because everyone was happy sitting on Earth. You know what I mean? It's like like we we gotta we gotta we gotta reframe the way we think of conflict and think of it as as an additive um rather than somehow deficit. You know, we think of conflict and we avoid it. And actually we shouldn't be avoiding conflict. We should be leaning in so that we can come out on the other side better. It's it's almost like this exponential change through that exchange. Yeah. And you've mentioned before that it's often about the intentions that you have coming into conflict. If you're going in there trying to win, yes. then that's not great. As a matter of fact, you said, if you desire to understand instead of trying to be right, you inquire, you ask questions. And that's right. So part of discussing hard things, Nancy, is about compassion. And we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I'm wondering if you could tell us what compassionate dialogue means for you. Yeah. So, you know, compassionate dialogue is really having a discussion, you know, or conversation with the intent to try to find a resolution, but the compassion piece is through connection, right? And showing empathy, right? And so if we can do 
those difficult, have those difficult conversations with the desire to connect with each other, even when I think that we have nothing in common and with the desire to be willing to show you empathy, a sense of understanding, even if I don't quite get it, right? Even Mm. if I don't quite understand where you're coming from, I understand that you're feeling it. I understand that it's your lived experience. And if we can do those things, we begin to transform how we're interacting with each other. Yeah, absolutely. About putting yourself in other people's shoes as the old saying goes. And that, yeah, yeah. and that, that is, I mean, it's hard and that is the compassion piece. And that, that's what changes a dialogue from just a regular old dialogue, a conversation, you know, where, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to win a conversation. I'm trying to change your mind. If I'm really seeking to just understand you and feel you and feel for you, what could that do? You know, how, how could that, how could that impact how we're interacting? Absolutely. So, you know, hard conversations are hard. That's, that's why they're called that. But you've made it somewhat more approachable, I think, by having the protocol that we already discussed, which is this uh, recognize, interrupt, and repair. So how has having a protocol for engaging in tough discussions affected your own personal life? Oh, I, I, I used a protocol in every aspect of my life. In fact, it's funny. My husband now says, he goes, are you using the RIR right now? <laughs> Uh, are you? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I'm, and, and usually I am. Um, you know what? I, I, it started off as a, as a, you know, as kind of a solution, a solution, not the solution, but a solution for interpersonal interactions, you know, with colleagues, with people at mm-hmm. work. And it really evolved. And, you know, in the book, I, I showed these cogs, right? So the mm-hmm. interpersonal is the biggest one because it's, it's how we're engaging with each other. But as you spin the cogs of the wheel, the other cogs are turning. So on one side, you have intrapersonal. Those are my, that's me. That's looking at my beliefs and my mindset and, you know, those things that are internal to me. And then you have organizational on the other side of that interpersonal cog. So what I started to understand is that the more I focused on those relationships and having better interactions and, and more compassionate dialogue with my colleagues, that it was impacting me and how I was seeing myself and how I was thinking about other people and, and how I was challenging my own kind of mindsets and, and, and beliefs. And what you begin to understand is that you cannot work on yourself and work on how you're engaging with other people without then impacting your organization, right? Because we're right. all part of the organization. And so those cogs are spinning. The question is, is it, are they connecting in a functional way or dysfunctional way? And so with Compassionate Dialogue, we're helping those interactions become more functional and more compassionate so that we can ultimately impact the, the um, environment by creating spaces where, where people belong and people are thriving, which, you know, in corporate leads to increased profits and, and worker satisfaction. I mean, there, there's so much mm-hmm. information out there that shows you that if we could just figure out how to have better climate and culture, that the bottom line for any organization would improve as well. Absolutely. And I think about, you mentioned the cogs. I like to imagine this big watch, like a big clock in the middle of a town square. Mm -hmm. And you have your own interpersonal self-reflection. That's a big cog that's going on. And just as you mentioned, as one cog turns, the other one turns. And they have to all be in sync and together for that thing to tell the time or else it's totally useless. But, but 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 that's tough. That's not always easy. No, it, I mean, there's nothing easy about it, but it's worthwhile. That I think that's what we have to focus on is the outcome. 
I think one of the biggest, I'm trying to think of the right word I want to use, but one of the biggest, is it a confound? No, but I think one of the biggest hindrances to the work that I'm talking about doing this work around equity and inclusion and, you know, and when we talk about diversity is that we have a misconception of what diversity is. And so when I ask people about diversity and equity, they talk about all the good things. They talk about, you know, diversity is difference and celebration and foods and uniqueness, but they don't talk about the difficult, but what I call the shadow side of, you know, kind of Marianne Williams and stuff. It's like, there's a shadow to everything. And so the shadow of diversity is that it's complicated. There's misunderstandings. There's just a level of difficulty associated with it. But because we've been taught only to celebrate diversity, when it gets hard, we quit, right? Yeah. But when you know something's hard, think about it. Like when you learn, when you try to learn a language or an instrument, you don't go on there thinking, oh, I'm going to nail this in one day. You go on there thinking the only way I'm going to get this is by practice. But when we talk about diversity, and when we talk about equity, we think it's good, you know, we see the the light side, all the benefits of it, but we don't see that there is a shadow, that there is hard work behind it. And if we actually enter these conversations, understanding that they're supposed to be hard, that they're mm -hmm. going to be difficult, that there's going to be misunderstandings, that it's going to take more work than if I did it another way. But the end product will be that we create, we transform the spaces that we're working in, right? then it would still be worth it. And I would know. And so we kind of set it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's like the big setup. It's a big setup because people are like, it's not supposed to be hard. We're supposed to be celebrating each other. Well, no, it's hard to celebrate. It's hard to get to that place where we can start to really truly celebrate and honor each other. But so we need to totally. enter these conversations knowing that it's going to be challenging and that the outcome will be worth it. It's, I kind of liken it to having a child. Like very few people go, women go through that nine months thinking <laughs> this was like the best, you know, I think they think it's the best thing, but you know, there's a lot of discomfort, you know, some people have complications, but at the end it, they do it again, which means that it was worth it. Right. And that's how we kind of have to see this work is that it's hard. We're birthing, we're birthing um, communities. We're birthing, you know, relationships and it totally. takes effort. Another way that I like to think about it is, you know, Thanksgiving dinner or something. We know that that when people are preparing that, that takes a lot of work. You have to buy all the ingredients. You have to have all these different plates. If you were to have a simple, you know, microwave meal for Thanksgiving, that's easy. That's great. But the diversity of all the different plates, I don't have a very diverse dinner all the time, Nancy. So Thanksgiving is my, <laughs> <laughs> but the diversity of all the plates, it takes a lot of work. And if you're prepared, yes. if you're going in there, if you have family that's helping you, that's everyone's at the table, they yeah. know who's washing the dishes and whatever, you're going right. to have a really great meal. That's right. That's right. And and it's that collaboration, right? And that that hard work that you put in for and and for what you know. At the end of the day, it's that time together, and then it's a in twenty minutes, it's all gone. But it was worth it, right? That two two days of planning was worth that twenty minutes of you know eating. So same, yeah, same thing. But but that we just have to understand that it actually requires an effort, and it actually might be uncomfortable sometimes. Totally. So. A lot of this stuff, you know, we're on Hello Sonoma. A lot of this stuff might seem far away from here. You know, we're, we're talking about all kinds of stuff. But I love that a lot of the conversations that you were having happened right here in Sonoma because you lived here for a little while. We had You took some videos of uh, talking with people with your conversation cards on the Sonoma Plaza, which was really great. 
yeah. you've been locally involved also in Sonoma. You were on the board of the Mentoring Alliance, the Teen Services, Hannah Boys Center. You gave presentations there. Even now on the Sonoma Family Youth and Services Board, you've given presentations at readers' books about your book and so much more. So given this, uh, Sonoma is a, is a pretty special community in a lot of ways. It's a unique place. But it's a community like many others. I'm curious, what does community mean to you? So community, I think the the bottom line is that community means that everyone within it feels like they can contribute, that they're respected, and that they belong there. And more so that if they weren't there, that they would be missed. Wow. Right? Yeah, that's really powerful, that if they weren't there, they would be missed. That's like... That's that's a totally different framing because we try to think about you've mentioned the tragedy of nonness, but this is the whatever the opposite of tragedy is. It's like when you don't the absence gives value. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't know how yeah. to put that in a better way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we forget that. It's like family, right? When you like I've lost I lost a sibling when I was in my late twenties. And, you know, that's more than half my life ago. And there's not a day that I don't miss him. Right, that that his presence is is noticed, right? Even and he left us five beautiful children, and yet his absence is noticed. I mean, so I think that's community. Is that it's because because you contribute it to it, and you're a part of it. That when you're not there, your absence is noticed and it's missed. And and I think that helps us really understand if people can come and go, and no one notices, then were they really a part of the community? Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. And that's, I think, what a lot of people strive for their whole lives is to be able to come and grow, come and go in the universe and and leave an impact. So I'm curious how you think people should see themselves and their roles in helping to shape whatever communities they're a part of. I mean, I think that we, everyone has, you know, it's hard to, to do a blanket statement because I think everyone has different levels of comfort and also, you know, kind of expertise. Like I've got, I've got but, someone who who's amazing, but wants to always be behind the scenes, right? And then there's people. So I think that the truer kind of response is, how do you contribute in the way that makes sense for you, right? But there's this notion that we all are contributing, that I'm not just sitting here reaping the benefits of it, that I'm a part of, you know, whether it's a solution, the celebration, that I'm contributing in the way that I can, that makes sense for my skill set. So how do you see your role in the community? Oh, well, I mean, my role, I, so I think that's what I did. You know, I was there for almost seven years and my skill set is truly people and education. And I think that I offer a perspective and that's why I wanted to be involved in, in the boards. I wanted to be a part of the decision making. I wanted to be a part of, you know, of change and growth. And I wanted to impact kids. I mean, everything I do ultimately leads back to kids always. Like even the work I'm doing now leads back to how do we support young people? How do we help them thrive in the skin that they're in? And so for me, being in Sonoma, it was the best way I found that I could do that was really being on, you know, involved in the, the different boards that I was involved in. And also actively, you know, I, I realized when I was working for Mentoring Alliance, I'm like, how can I work for Mentoring Alliance and actually not have ment- mentees, right? <laughs> and so... So then, you know, I don't do anything halfway. So instead of getting one mentee, I think I ended up at one time with like nine, you know, um, and oh with, with some other uh, mentors that we co-mentee, you know, that we did for 
I did four girls from the high school and then um, four adults did four boys from Hannah Boys Center. And so it's just, and we just kept doing it. So I just feel like, you know, that's my gift is, is my willingness and ability to, to see young people and see them for what they, who they are and what they bring and, and then to advocate for them. What a beautiful gift that you have. No, thanks. We're going to have to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with Dr. Nancy Dome on Hello Sonoma. Hello Sonoma, welcome back. We were just talking with Dr. Nancy Dome about her gift to see how kids can contribute to the conversation and what they can add to the table. So I think it's interesting that we bring up your own childhood and your own growing up. Uh, you grew up in LA, raised mainly by your grandmother and then your brothers, and then very quickly by yourself. You were working from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. every night and then going to school afterwards and really having to work really hard for yourself. Um, so for some audiences, me included, I don't think I can ever fully understand what that must have been like. And you've talked about when addressing inequalities or inequities, you say that people need to know what it feels like. So what are some of the ways in which you help people know what differences feel like more than just telling them stories? Yeah, you know, I think it's that is really where the empathy part comes in, because I think the kind of balance I'm always trying to make when I share that information about myself is I'm not looking for pity and his pity is useless yeah. and it does right. nothing. It does nothing. It, it changes nothing. Right. In fact, it makes, it makes you feel worse about yourself. Right. Because you see other people feeling so bad for you. But this notion of sympathy means that I'm seeking to understand. So while I can never know your experience, I can understand, wow, that must have been difficult and understand that with all those challenges, there might be areas that I could provide support. Again, how do I contribute? Right. So, when my kids, when I was working in juvenile court and community schools, understanding my kids' background helped me understand when, you know, they showed up tired to school and they, they needed a, a, a breakfast or they needed something. I didn't come to those spaces in judgment. I came to those spaces in support and helped them balance. And so I think that I share that to, to show that one, one, I don't think there's anything special about me in that way. Like I, I, I believe, but I also don't believe that it is all about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I had some really significant people in my life, educators and other adults and other young people who provided support and provided stability and were the reasons why I came out the other side of that because I could have easily gone a different way. And I think too many times we we blame we blame the victim of those situations, you know, if I steal some food because I'm hungry, I get done for stealing food, but no one's trying to fix the root cause of why I'm stealing food in the first place, which is I'm hungry, right? And so how do we, if we really want to make change, and that's a difference, pity is like, oh, poor thing, and sympathy, and, and or not sympathy, empathy is this understanding, I was like, we need to figure out how to get them food. Like, totally. So I see principals working regularly to get free lunch program but get it for all their kids because even if some families don't qualify, it doesn't mean that kids aren't coming to school hungry and food challenged at home, right? And so I really want people to understand that when we're when someone shares that story, it's really to get to the other side is like, how do I support people in my community, people around me who might need support? 
right, in these areas? And what does what can support look like to change the circumstances? Totally. A, a great example that was in your book that I thought highlighted this is, as you mentioned, you were a teacher in juvenile courts, and you had these kids come in here who were dressed certain ways. You know, they're wearing specific colors, sometimes affiliated with gangs. They were wearing the clothes of their communities. And many right. other teachers had said, like, you got to take that off. Like, you can't be wearing that in here. And you were you went the step further, like, hmm, I wonder why they're wearing those clothes. Mm -hmm. And learned that if it's a survival thing, like, they could get hurt yeah. outside if they weren't wearing those clothes. And so you talked to them and right. came to a really important compromise. And it yep. was just so so interesting to hear that version of, like, this is a totally different experience from mine. How can I learn from them? Right. And being willing, I think that willingness to let them teach me and, and then let's come up with a solution together. I think a lot of times as educators and even as adults or business owners, we feel like we have to have all the answers. And, <laughs> and I, I think that's part of the problem is that I, again, I'm, I learn every day how much I don't know. And so I like, I let my students, I let my colleagues, you know, I let my clients teach me how to be within. That's an important lesson to learn. Another yeah. exercise I wanted to bring up about how you help people feel differences mm -hmm. and really feel what it's like is you have an exercise called the color line, I believe. Oh, yeah. Can you just explain for people who might not know what that yeah, is? Yeah, so that's actually, it, it's an exercise I use, but it was actually created by Peggy McIntosh, Dr. Peggy McIntosh. And um, she is a, she, I think she does consulting now, but she was a professor and she was actually more interested in women's studies. And what she found out what, as she was doing her research was that that race actually impacted experiences more than gender. It was more important than gender. So whether you were white or black or brown or whatever, had more impact on your experiences than your gender did, whether you were male or female. And so what she did was she created these a list of like 50 questions that you rated yourself on. And you rate yourself... Like, and some of the questions are like, can I be assured, relatively assured that when I ask to speak to a manager, they'll look like me, right? Like, like racially like me. And so for me, that's a zero. But if you're white, that could be a five. And if you're Asian or, you know, a different, a different ethnicity, that might be a three, right? Right. And so at the end of the day, the more points you have, 130 being the highest, puts you on one end, as you can imagine. And also, if you can imagine, with 50 questions, my score is typically around 15, right? So if you really literally think of a line where you line people up from zero to 130 and you begin to see literally the darker people are closer to zero and as yeah. their skin lightens, they move to 130. And that is a color line. And I think when people see that, if they can ride their emotional wave and get past the anger of being on either end, right? Then they really begin to understand how people's experiences may differ from their own. Totally. It is, it is an exercise, just like that question you asked about how, like, you weren't poor. How do you know? How, how do I experience? That's how you experience it. You look and, you, and all of a sudden you have this, you understand in a way that you maybe could not have before. Yeah, even just reading about it, it was a powerful experience. And I wanna highlight that answering these questions is based on personal experiences. Like each person personally answers it based on how they've experienced the world. Right. And right. it's it's wild that, that it's that it's such a, a direct correlation. You literally see yeah. the color 
go on that spectrum. Yeah. And and what's you know what's really interesting about it too is that every now and then you'll like you can have a white person who's lower in the numbers, and I always ask a couple questions, and you can also have darker people in the middle. And there's always some questions. One is, who are you married to? <laughs> who are your children or grandchildren? Right? Because, you know, white privilege as a construct is something that is given and taken away. Right? Mm-hmm. And so when you are married to a person of color, you lose some of your white privilege. And when you have children who are biracial, you again lose your privilege because they have experiences that are different than yours when you're by yourself. That's a great point. That identity is not a, it's not a one it's not one thing. It changes. It's like yeah, I don't know if you're fluid. ever in theater, but it's like one of those things they put on the lights in a theater. <laughs> like it changes depending on the color of the light that this might be a too esoteric of an example. <laughs> <laughs> but so we'll skip it. Okay. Um so in another interview, you talked about how taking an inward journey can help you develop personally and professionally. You mentioned, you know, social justice is about helping people reach their full potential. And it's like looking through different lenses that people see the world differently. So you have to talk to people who aren't like me, not to project what they're thinking, but to ask, what are you thinking? So my question is, what do you think people most misunderstand about approaching this inward journey into who we are? And what do you wish they knew? That's a really good question. I think that what I wish they knew about this inward journey is that so it takes two to tangle you know i guess that's the best way to say it and we spend a lot of time in judgment externally without ever reflecting of how am i contributing to this to whatever interaction i'm having and if i if we spend a little more time reflecting on our contribution then we we might be more willing to find those places of connection right but because we don't take that critical inward look, there, there's more judgment and it's easier to blame someone else or something else for what's happening. But, I, you know, my thing is I always show up. I, I, I kind of, you know, the honeymoon period, you think about when people first meet. And I realized as I got older that I didn't really want a honeymoon period. You know, that time where I'm really, really sweet. I mean, I'm always sweet, but, you know, where I... I kind of demur and kind of let you make the decisions because it's not who I am. And eventually I'm going to show up. And so let's just show up in the beginning. Like I'm pretty strong. And so you're going to, if you're going to love me, you're going to love me for who I am and not for who I show up to be later. So I think that's the inward journey is like me understanding that I don't want to trick someone to, to, to loving me. I want someone to love me for me. So I needed to start showing up as me, mm-hmm. but I needed to figure out who I was. Right. And I think that's all of us. It's like we need to figure out who we are. And are these beliefs that I've inherited? Are these beliefs that I really have? Are these beliefs even founded in in reality? Are they based on what I'm watching on TV? You know, like really that inward journey really gets you to figure out it's okay. Here, since you made a theater reference, I'm going to make a movie reference. It was Runaway Bride. And there's a scene in there. Every time she dated someone, she liked eggs the way they liked eggs. And finally, she had to figure out how she liked her eggs. So she sits in the kitchen and she makes eggs like 20 different ways to find out how she likes it, right? Because she changed for every person she was with. I think that's a value. That's beautiful. Yeah. There's a great podcast that I've probably listened to 10 times that talks about what love is and how we misinterpret it. 
And mm-hmm. one of the things that this guy says, his name's Alan DeButton, is it doesn't make any sense for us to be leading people with our best selves. We should lead with our, you know, our biggest red flags and say like, hey, <laughs> these are the things you're going to have to deal with. Are you okay dealing with these? Absolutely. <laughs> but that requires a lot of internal looking in the mirror and saying like, man, this is what I got to work on. Like, am I ready to right. look and, and see what's there? Right. And also it requires some self-love too. I'm, I will not be everyone's cup of tea, but I am someone's cup of tea. Right. Yeah. And, and that thing, that red flag may not be as big of a red flag for some people. And so, you know, I think we hide those things because we're ashamed of them or we've been trained uh, to push them down. And I really think that the, it is a self-love that says, you know, this is, this is me and work in progress. And this is where I am right now. Totally. Well, that's why you have the compassionate dialogue. It applies to, to yourself mm-hmm. too. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Nancy, for taking us on this inward journey through our conversation. I'd like to remind people about this book. Let's talk about race and other hard things because it's a great opportunity for some self-reflection and for giving yourself some tools to look out, look out onto the world. It's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Oh, thank you, Francisco. I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. It's a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Nancy Dome, for chatting with me. I certainly learned a lot about how we can define who we are and being compassionate not only to others, but to ourselves. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. And remember that we've reached the end of this episode. It's not goodbye. It's Hello Sonoma. Hello Sonoma.